And now the reading, which is taken from... Acts chapter 20, beginning at verse 17 and going through to the end of the chapter. So from there to there. Lovely. From Miletus, Paul sent, sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared both Jews and Greeks, to both Jews and Greeks, that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task that the Lord has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you, none, none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I will commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering that the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for your word to us. It is a light for our path. It is food for our soul. May it be so for us this morning. Amen. 
Well, as we uh, gather around uh, God's Word and uh, particularly this event that Dave has just read to us uh, from our ongoing look in the book of Acts, um, we've got to this really defining moment in the ministry of Paul. It's in Acts chapter 20. Paul is in a place called Miletus, and it's one of those big turning points. But to get a sense of why that's important both to him and to us, uh, we need to catch up a little bit with the story. Um, so last week, if you remember, Andy took us to a time when there was a great movement in both Paul's life and in the life of, and work of the gospel. It was often through adversity and challenge, and the Spirit of God had guided his, Paul and his companions to bring the good news of the kingdom uh, to, uh, uh, the, to Europe, to the West. I'm going to get a map put up if someone can do that for me. Oh, there you go. Right. And so uh, the, the, the top left-hand part of that is, is Paul's first encroachment to Europe. Um, and uh, last week we heard about the time when he was in Athens and he was speaking the gospel in a new way to a new culture and uh, good things were happening. It was truly a, an aspect of movement and new things. And it was probably, just so you get your history dates, in about, about the year 49 AD. And the moment we're talking about that Dave read to us is probably about 10 years later. A whole decade has passed since Paul was giving his speech in the Areopagus in Athens. So let's think about that. If we sort of map that time frame onto us right now, imagine that we right now in 2022 are with Paul in Miletus and we're hearing what he is saying to us, then the big move into, into our area, into the, the arrival of the gospel to us, it probably happened around about 2012. If you can imagine that, we're in 2022, so, so Paul's big movement towards us was in about 2012. Paul's missionary journeys themselves uh, probably happened a short time in the short period before that, so perhaps around 2010 was the time he was sent out with Paul and Barnabas. And that was about 10 to 15 years after he himself had encountered the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. So Paul's conversion experience was probably in the late 90s, and that was about four or five years after Jesus died and rose in heaven. And in our time frame, that would be sort of the mid-90s-ish. That's the sort of time frame we're looking at. So if I think, and I'm not getting illusions about myself here, if I imagine that I'm right now at the age that Paul might have been, I'm almost 50, um, then in my, uh, sorry, in my late 40s, so in my late 30s was when we did this great big missionary journey. Um, I had an encounter with God in my mid-20s and Jesus was walking around in my late teens. Sort of maps onto a lifetime, doesn't it? I'm just trying to make this real. Yeah, yeah? Helpful? Right. So Paul had this big movement 10 years ago, and it's not like nothing's been happening in this last decade. This last decade of Paul's ministry has been a joyous, wonderful, heart-stirring establishment of something that is true and something that is real and something that I think that every Christian and every church longs for. And the only word that I know to be able to grasp what has been formed in these 10 years since this big movement is the word fellowship. 
And I groan a little bit because we've made that word very weak. We, we, for us, it sometimes just means not much more than let's have fellowship after, after the service where we'll have a cup of tea and a biscuit. But fellowship is actually deeper than that. It's about true community. It's about the forming of brothers and sisters in arms, if you like. A better use of the word fellowship is in Lord of the Rings, and all good sermons have a Lord of the Rings reference, when you talk about the fellowship of the ring, where there's this bond forged in purpose and loyalty, and in the end, love, and it grasps a vision that can outlast even the adversity around it. That is the sort of fellowship that is being built in these 10 years. Individuals and couples and households and groups have found themselves caught up in the reality of what Paul has proclaimed, that the Spirit of Jesus is doing something new, even in these days, something new in the world, something new in society, something new in us. And it wasn't perfect, but it was true as they lived it out and worked out what it meant and experimented with it. And in those 10 years, Paul has moved in and around this area. He leaves Athens and back when he first arrived, and then he spends a lot of time just to further south from Athens. You can see just towards the, the left-hand side there, you can see here, you see Corinth. And he spent a good deal of time in Corinth. He doesn't just pass through. He stays there for more than a year. And we learn some of the names of the people who formed this fellowship. There are people like Priscilla and Aquila who worked with him in Corinth, both in the practical work of making tents to put food on the table and in the deeper work of the apostolic ministry. Priscilla and Aquila as a couple are apostolic in the same way that Paul is. And they raise up a young man called Apollos, and he's later to lead the church in Corinth. There's this fellowship forming. And a bit after that, Paul moves to Ephesus. And you can see Ephesus there sort of in the middle, slightly left and centre of the middle. Ephesus was a very important um, place. And he was there. And during that time, we know he was writing letters back to his friends across across the sea there, um, to, the, to Corinth, to build them up and to bless them and guide them and sometimes even to tell them off. And he's in Ephesus for two, maybe three years. And we quickly pass through that time when we read Acts. We hear about some of the really cool stories, like the riot in the amphitheatre in chapter 19. But it's longer lived than that. This is a real season. And I imagine that it's this time of great joy and delight and discovery of all that God was willing to do amidst a community that was truly devoted to seeking his way. And so that's how Paul spends 10 years building this fellowship. But within him still burned the Great Commission. In chapter 19, we are told that he had his heart set on two things. He wanted to, to return to Jerusalem, uh, to the root place where the gospel had its roots, and to travel from there to Rome. And that's the bit of the story that's coming up next week and onwards. But with that, and so with that in mind, knowing that he's setting his face on this next part of the journey, he leaves Ephesus. And he does one last tour of Macedonia and Greece to hug his friends, to say goodbye to them, 
to see them and to encourage them. And as he goes through back up and down through Greece, he then comes across uh, to uh, Asia Minor to a place near Ephesus on the coast, a little town called Miletus. It's not even on that map, but it's just down the road from Ephesus. And he sends words to his friends who he's been there with for years. Come and join me here. Come and be here with me because I will not see your face again as he then heads off to Jerusalem. Can you see how this is an emotion-filled time? By the end, there is hugging and there's weeping and there's kissing and you can see how much he wants to encourage them and leave them with some energy or some hope or some graspable truth that will empower them on the way forward. Have you got the sense of the story? The only, uh, this is a bit live for me, so you'll have to be, excuse me a little bit, but um, the, only way, the only illustration I can imagine that really gets a grasp of the impact that this is having on Paul is when it's like uh, those who have had kids that have grown up and are leaving or have left the nest. For those of us who have that, have had that experience, or even just someone you care about who you just want to lift up and launch, Um, there's a sense here that I think Paul has something similar. He doesn't want to cling to them, just like parents shouldn't cling to their children as they grow old. But he does want to impart to them. He wants them to see who they truly are. He wants them to walk in the truth. He wants them to be able to be solid on the foundation that is in their lives. He, He wants to take what he can see with his eyes that have just a little bit more experience and a little bit more wisdom. And he wants to sort of insert that into them so that as he leaves, he knows that they will remember who they are and they will remember the rock on which they stand. Can you, can you see the longing in Paul's heart? as he bids them farewell. We reach that point in both growing children as well as growing churches, perhaps, where we cannot generate the strength of that other. We cannot muster the maturity of the ones in front of us. We cannot dream up or lend them our experience or our faith or our hope. It must become real for them. It must become in their own rights. No wonder when Paul wrote to his church, he prayed, I pray that you open the eyes of, that he will open the eyes of your hearts, that you may know him. He doesn't want them to have second-hand experiences, but their own foundation. And you can see that fatherly heart in Paul at this moment when he bids farewell to his friends. So we're just going to take a little glimpse to look at three ways in which we see that and understand that this isn't just a message from Paul to his friends in Ephesus, but it's a message from the heart of God, even to us. So if we could put up the next slide, Pete. Um, um, There you go. Verse 32, I'm going to go work backwards from the end. Here's verse 32. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And he goes on. Can you see his parental heart here he's saying you don't need me now you're ready you have all you have he says i commit you to the word of his grace this is if to say do you know how much god loves you are you aware of how much grace you have received 
if the truth of that, if the word of that, if the message of that truly grasps you, then you will emerge into who you are called to be. You don't need me. Perhaps this is what we can hear. As we come to the end of our time today here in this space, we're going to have a time that we set aside to wait on God and to listen. There's going to have a deliberate time of pondering in our worship today where we can think about and share how God is moving and calling us in our own fellowship here. And here's something to ponder. Are you aware of the inheritance that is amongst us? What is the word of God's grace to us here in 2022? How imbibed and immersed and committed to that grace are we? It comes partly from an awareness of our own experience. Each of us can see the goodness of God in this or that part of our lives or in this or that aspect of our community. But more fundamentally, it's a reminder of a grace that comes from the outside of ourselves, a wealth, if you like, that we have received from elsewhere. God has given us his son. He has offered us forgiveness. He has shown us the path of freedom and of sanctification that is not the same as the supposed wisdom of the world. He draws our hearts away from immature, self-soothing, self-satisfying, sinful ways towards a holiness that is ours to hold, even if it's not from us. Paul talks about not coveting silver or gold or clothing, and he worked with his own hands because it was that grace from God that he held more valuable for himself and for them. In today's world, you can imagine him saying something like, I didn't covet church attendance while I was with you, my brothers and sisters, or financial stability. I didn't worry about my own pension pots Although there were some people called super apostles that went around during these 10 years trying to do that. He says, rather, he says, my heart was what I, we could give away. It's more blessed to give than to receive. And what we have to give is the knowledge of God's grace. And so when we come to our time of reflecting in a minute, I perhaps we ponder, what is it that we have received? What is God's grace? It's not false affirmation or pretense. It is loved, love drenched in reality. It's not God's delight in the fact that we are lovable. It's God's gift of himself to us in our unloveliness, in our weakness, in our self-delusions and in our strivings. It is grace. Paul didn't leave his friends with, remember how awesome you are. He left them with, remember the reality of God in your lives. That reality that you don't deserve, which means it's secure because it doesn't depend on you. He has freely given. Trust in all that he has blessed you with and pass it on. That's the first point. Paul's fatherly heart. Second one, if we have the next slide, as we work backwards, we can see some of Paul's concerns here. I know that after I leave, he says, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. 
I remember dropping off one of my children at university. Uh, we'd made our farewells, we'd settled them in, and it got to that point where we had to drive away. And in my rearview mirror, I caught a glimpse of them in the car park alone, and I felt it. That one was ready. They all are. It wouldn't have been right for me to go back and say and load them up with burdens. Be careful of this. Watch for that. Here's all the risks that you will encounter in the next five minutes. But we all know things, how things can go wrong. The world is not easy or safe. There are troubles from the outside and there are troubles that well up from within us. Among those troubles we know are those going to be temptations. There will be easy, wide paths of worldly ways to get swept along with and narrow, difficult paths of loneliness and faith to find, sometimes by way of repentance. And you know the hardest thing to see when your children are growing up is when they are shaken not from the outside but in their inner life and you want to hold them and embrace them not with sentiment or cliche, but with simply with truth. Remember who you are. And as this baby church grows up, Paul is aware of a similar thing for his people. A fellowship committed to the way of Jesus is not going to have an easy path. And they know it. They, they've already been attacked from the outside with the riot in Ephesus and people persecuted in their midst. But Paul also says this, guard your insights, guard your heart, guard yourselves. There will be those, he says, who undermine and tear down and speak lie from the inside. And Paul weeps with the urgency of wanting to strengthen their faith. It's one thing to resist the blatant evil lie. It's another thing to resist the friendly lie the gentle whisper of untruth, the slow erosion of who we truly are. Did God really say? Is he really there? Can we really trust him? Maybe all of this is wrong. And Paul exhorted them with tears throughout his time with them to prepare them. I realised a few days ago that this year marks 20 years since I was ordained, which makes me feel old. And, uh, and without wanting to boast and go, oh, straight my wise old beard, I'm going to do a little bit of that and say there's two things that I've recognised that have come with me from this 20 years. The first is fellowship. Over 20 years I have been with brothers and sisters who have walked with us, prayed with us, dreamed with us, bled with us. Brothers and sisters who have rebuked me at times and encouraged me and saw me, and that is grace, and that is joy. And to the extent that I see that in my experience, even today, in this room, around the table, in my house, and elsewhere, I delight and rejoice, and it makes me weep with joy sometimes. But the other thing I have brought with me over these last 20 years are scars. In every church I've been in, there have been wolves. And in every single one of them, those wolves thought they were sheep. Some of them thought they were shepherds. Very few of them were malicious or nasty, although some were. They were the easy ones, to be frank. 
And sometimes I know that it's been me who has been the one who has wounded others. But in every church, there is a wolfish side to us. It comes from our own insecurities, from some need to have something affirmed in us that would hide some pain or cover some sin or boost our egos. And so there's this slow drip feed. And suddenly the fellowship is not about Jesus anymore or the manifestation of the kingdom. It's about a pet project or the need to not fail or about someone noticing my pain or it's about buying into the current zeitgeist, the ways of the world, because in that place I can be more powerful. And suddenly the church becomes about agendas and factions and eggshells and a culture of suspicion which is ultimately grounded in the fundamental existential question, is God true or not? Has God spoken? And we're going to have a time of pondering in a minute, and can I gently put this in front of you? This church has similar joys of fellowship and similar scars. And I wonder if in our reflection, if we can ask God for healing, restoration, and perhaps even some repentance. And finally, last slide. Right at the beginning, Paul's opening remarks, and I love him for this. People make out Paul to be some sort of dictatorial control freak, and they are wrong. Here is Paul's prayer of relinquishment, of his laying his burden down. I have done all I can, he says. I have given you the truth. I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. I have done all I can. I have spoken the word of God to you. I have put spiritual food on your table. Whether you eat it or not, or follow Jesus or not, I cannot control that, manipulate that, or generate that, and neither do I want to. You are not mine, he says. You are God's. So there's a prayer of relinquishment. And there is also a prayer of commissioning. So feed yourselves now, he says. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds, knowing that you yourselves are not even your own. You are Christ's and Christ's alone. You know the big difference between a child and one who's grown up? It's the level of dependence. When my children were children children, they needed me to do everything from select the menu from their dinner to cut up their food. And now it's a delight when I don't hear from them except when they choose to approach us and say, Mum, Dad, I need help with some adulting today. Like car insurance and all that sort of boredom. But it's on their terms and I've just become a resource. And I started this talk by talking about fellowship. And here's where I want to land it. One of the differences I've noticed between churches that are real fellowships and churches that are just churches is a form of infantilism. And in many of our church structures are actually set up to keep us in a place of immaturity because we like dependency. From one side we like the control and from the other side we like the passivity and the comfort. It's easy to manage and it's easy to report. 
But true fellowship is a community amongst motivated adults that are on the same page and are pursuing the way of Christ in a multiplicity of ways. So as, I come, as we come to this time of pondering, just a minute, and we are going to have some time, <laughs> can I put one little observation in front of us? As we come out of COVID into this next season, we know we're in a time of transition. We are. And it's going to take a while, guys. I'm in this for the long game. But in the midst of it, and perhaps it's just me, there's a temptation, perhaps an expectation that direction needs to be given to us, that someone else has the solution and they should tell us. And sometimes I feel, from the, feel the pressure from myself if no one else that says, Will, what should we do? Tell us what's next. What does the kingdom of God look like? Tell us what to do. And I think you've heard, it say, heard it, me say it from a few times from the front here. I don't know what to do. In fact, it's the other way around. There are 300 things we could do right now. And where we are motivated, we are actually beginning to do some of them. Children's work, Essex mission work, and there's some deep, deep digging of spiritual roots towards growing the kingdom in Netherthorpe. But I found myself resisting the temptation to give an easy answer to myself, let alone to the rest of us. I don't know how we are going to go forward. But I want to turn it round, brothers and sisters. Watch over yourselves and the ones that God has put under you. Feed yourselves. So what do you want? What do you want to do? As you watch over yourselves and the flock that is at least your own heart and your household. As you shepherd yourself, you who belong to Jesus. What do you want? I'm not going to stand here and give you the road map, mostly because I don't know how to draw it. I can point out to you where I see the embers glowing and we can blow on them. I can help you give some words to the possibilities that we might see. And I can do the vicar stuff and, you know, and bless stuff and give you PCC approvals or all the other machinery. And I'll put the word in front of you as best I can, the word of grace. And Jill and I will create space for prayer and devotion as best we can. And, and there'll be others, Amy and Tina and Anne and every single one of us who, who, who has taken the bold step of being willing to hold this space and bring God's word and, and how we share and encourage one another in all that we do. That will all happen, but I'm asking you to take responsibility for your response to God and to watch over yourselves and those who are yours. To be shepherds of God's precious lambs and to feed yourselves. Immerse yourself in the word of God and prayer. You have all that you need. We have all that we need because we have God's grace. What do you want to do? Let us not just be a church. Let's be a fellowship sharing the years and the life and the joys of God's kingdom together and as we come into a time of reflection I wonder if we can ponder that God can build his church on his own but he has this very interesting desire for us to help him so now we are as Will said we're going to have an extended time now of 
let's just either getting sitting on our own or getting into small groups and praying together um, to just wait on God and see what he wants for you, what he wants for us as a, as a fellowship, as a church. Um, you know, the question is, we want to build your kingdom here, God. How do we go about it? Each one of us, we're all different. There will be different answers to many of us. And um, so I just want to ask you if you would like to uh, find yourself a space. There's the vestry, there's outside, that door. There's even outside if you want. Uh, but it's a bit chilly. Um, and then I will pray a prayer and there'll be some music playing quietly. And it's, yeah, this space is yours. This space is God's to uh, let's find what do you want of us, God? What do you want us to do? So I'll just pray now. Our God, the one true God, come to us now by your spirit. Give us a de desire to see your kingdom built here in this place. Come, Holy Spirit.